Daniel chapter 2, 31 through 45, that is our passage. We will uh, be continuing our mini-series called Dreams, Death, and Deliverance. We're actually walking through the book of Daniel, most of you know that, uh, but we've kind of made chapter 2, we've turned it into a little bit of a mini-series, and so far we've looked at the predicament, that was verses 1 through 16, the prayer, verses 17 through 23, and the plan, verses 24 through 30. This morning we are going to look at the prediction, and that is verses 31 through 45, and and. I was thinking, wow, this is like the moment that I've been waiting for, like we've been kind of creeping through Daniel 2, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar had this awesome dream with all this imagery and stuff, and, and I've been wanting to get to the part where we actually talk about the dream and its interpretation, and so we have arrived there. We are going to, this morning, look at Nebuchadnezzar's mysterious dream. Now, this passage that we're looking at today is divided into two sections, In verses 31 through 35, Daniel described the dream. He told the king what it was. Remember the king's requirement. Somebody had to describe the dream and give an interpretation. So in 31 through 35, Daniel does the first part. He describes it. And then in verses 36 through 45, he interprets the dream. He tells the king what it means or what it meant. At this point in The storyline in the historical narrative, Daniel is standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king. He is in the king's court, and he has done his absolute best so far to point to the God of heaven as the one who reveals these mysteries. In other words, Daniel has spent quite a bit of time trying to make sure that as he speaks and interprets this vision to the king, he wants the God of heaven to get all the glory because the God of heaven is the one who actually revealed the mystery to him. So he's, he's spent quite a bit of time here just trying to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar does not miss the reality of this and that it's the God of heaven that has revealed this. That way the God of heaven could receive all the praise and glory. Now before we look at what happened next, uh, it's befitting that we pray one more time uh, for our time in God's word. Father in heaven, we again uh, just want to lift up this time to you, this service to you, and we ask that you would be merciful to us in that you would reveal the divine truth to us, that you would speak the truth that we're looking at to us in such a way that it becomes manifest and transformative in our lives. Send the Spirit to come in power that he may unpack it and apply it. And may we not miss the grander point to this text uh, and not get caught up in this kingdom and that kingdom, but that we might see truly what you're communicating here to the king and to us. It's of vital importance that we don't spin our wheels with eschatology and end time views and that we actually see and get the point. And so just help help the scripture to be clear to us. It is perfectly clear, but I'm not always the clearest speaker of it, but help me to speak clearly this morning. And, and move in power and uh, help us to understand and to apply and to be changed. And we give you this time, it's all for your glory. As Daniel pointed to you, the God of heaven, we point to you too. That all the glory and praise, anything good that would come out of this would be ascribed to you for your glory. And may we be a thankful people today as you grace us during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick it up right there in verses 31 and 32. I'll just read the text and then then, uh, give you the exposition. Uh, Again, he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar. He's already said several things, and now he's beginning to unpack the king's dream. Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Uh, Verse 32, the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs, middle would be probably the abdomen, the chest, the abdomen, Uh, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. In verse 31, 
Daniel began by identifying what the king saw in this mysterious dream that kept him up late at night and pretty much turned his life upside down, caused him to to put out an edict to kill all of his wise men because they couldn't tell him anything about the dream. Uh, Daniel begins by identifying literally what the king saw in his dream, a great image which stood before him. That's how he begins the description. It basically was a statue representing like a giant or a man. And look at some of the things that he said here. He said that it was mighty. He said that it was exceedingly bright. And he said that it was frightening. This was a frightening statue, if you will. Uh, No wonder the king had insomnia, right? This was like a, uh, what would we call that, a nightmare? This was a nightmare for Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 32, he described its features or parts. It had a head of fine gold, and I like how he puts fine there. It's, it's gold that's better than regular gold. Didn't really know there could be a better gold than gold, but apparently this is like the higher carat value. It had a head of not just gold, but fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its middle chest, abdomen, and thighs were bronze. Sounds like the Olympics, right? You got the gold, you got the silver, you got the bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were iron mixed with clay. Now, here's what I want you to notice about what he said so far. I want you to notice how the statue, how this image decreases in value from top to bottom. It's very, very important that you see that. Maybe that's not what you would see right off the bat. You'd just see the gold, silver, bronze, and iron. You wouldn't think much of that. But there is literally, from the top down, from the head down, there is decreasing value in these alloys. Okay, you have gold, which is, and this is fine gold, which is obviously most valuable. It was, it is today, and it was back then. And then you have silver, less value. And then you have bronze, even less. And then you have iron, which is, like, really cheap. And then you have iron with clay. That would be the lowest value. Now, I believe the different alloys and their values represent the moral quality or moral wealth of these kingdoms, not their physical wealth and not their physical strength, size, or power. I think that the different alloys reflect the moral quality or wealth of each of these kingdoms. In other words, the head of gold, of fine gold, was the most moral kingdom. Now, that's hard to imagine when it's Babylon. When I think of Babylon, I think of Revelation, and I think of all of this toxic talk about Babylon and how bad it is. Think about that for a moment. But I do believe that the head of gold was the most moral kingdom, the most morally upright. And then, and then the silver kingdom underneath that. And then, and then bronze. And then America. I mean iron. And then iron with clay. Now just, just think about it. This is my theory, and a lot of theologians say the same thing. There's decreasing value here. Isn't decreasing morality... Isn't that the way that humanity functions? Okay, so so what I'm saying is is that fallen humanity, like people who have not been saved and made new, new creations, fallen humanity, the average Joe, regular folks, which I was one more, more of my life than I have been a believer, fallen humanity does not increase in morality over time. It decreases. In other words, humanity gets progressively worse, not better. Fallen humanity does not ascend and go up in morality. It descends in immorality. Just read Genesis 6. It shows a downward moral spiral. You know, marriages were being destroyed and their violence was increasing throughout the earth and these sorts of things were happening. There was this downward moral spiral. And then what do you see in chapter 6? The flood. Now our own nation proves this point, does it not? Fifty years ago, things that were not acceptable are now celebrated. Even ten years ago. 
sexual immorality, and so on. At one point, our nation, the U.S., was like the golden head. Relatively moral and upright. Never ever perfect. But relatively moral and upright. But today, it has become like the bronze belly. And it is falling quickly. At breakneck speed, is it not? Our country is in moral decline. And if it does not repent and turn to the Lord, it will end up like the ancient kingdoms we're looking at. Sinclair Ferguson touched on this uh, really in an extraordinary way, I think. He said this. He said, here, the divine message emphasizes that the key to understanding the rise and fall of empires and emperors is not military or financial, but rather moral and spiritual. The destruction of these great kingdoms is not an accident of history but instead the outworking of the judgment of God on kingdoms that have turned from His laws and forsaken His word. I think this is absolutely true. So keep in your mind we have different values of alloys that all represent moral quality, and you're going down, 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 down to the bottom, to the least valuable. And keep in mind that it's not a country or a nation's military might or any of those things that keep it secure and solid. It is its moral quality, its spiritual quality that God sustains or judges. And this is so true. As Nebuchadnezzar gazed at this mighty, exceedingly bright, frightening image or statue, Something else caught his attention. Now I'm speaking of his dream. In this dream he saw this thing. But something else caught his attention while he was gazing upon this frightening statue. Look at verse 34. Daniel says to him, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So, as he was gazing upon the image, he saw a stone that had been hewn or cut out of something. And it was a, obviously, if it had not been cut out by human hands, there weren't any workers there notching the thing out and bringing it out. And it was probably too big for human hands to handle it. He saw this maybe massive stone cut out, not by human hands. He saw it, it was either hucked or thrown hurled, if you will, or it just dropped and it lands on the feet of the statue. And it shatters them. They are what? Iron and clay mixed and it shatters them to pieces. Now this began an upward chain reaction. Look at 35a. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. So when the, this stone, not cut out by human hands, flies in and strikes the image on the feet, that is the primary support, right? If you lose your feet, you're going down. The feet get hammered by this stone, shatter. The whole thing comes crashing down with such force that it became like dust in the wind. So it didn't just shatter into fragments and these pieces and lay in a pile. It came down and formed dust that was blown away. If you know anything about farming or ancient farming, you'll know that farmers would take their winnowing forks, you know, it's like a pitchfork, and they would scoop up bunches of wheat and chaff. What is chaff? It's dried weeds you know, it's the stuff that you don't want to sell or eat. They would scoop up bunches of wheat and chaff. Because why? Because wheat and chaff grow together. You know, when you have a wheat field, there's going to be weeds and chaff 
in there along with the wheat and the heads of grain and stuff. So they would take, you know, scoops and scoop up with their winnowing forks, their pitchforks, the wheat and the chaff, dried weeds, and they would hurl them into the air. They would hurl these piles or these lumps into the air and the wind would come and catch the chaff because it was lighter than the heads of grain and it would blow the chaff away, separate it. The wind would actually do all the separating. The heavier grains of wheat would fall to the ground and there you go. You've got your supply. And that's kind of the image that he's painting here. It's this farming image in a way. This statue falls explodes into tiny dust particles, and then it's blown away in a similar fashion to what that farmer would do with his grain. And it blew away by the wind in such a way, with such force, that it says that not a trace of this statue or of the dust that was left, not a trace of it could be, what's he say, found. In other words, it, was, it existed and it was blown away. And if you'd come over to the area where it was standing, you couldn't tell that it was ever there to begin with. It was as if it had never existed before. That's what he's saying. Now look at what became of the stone in verses 35b and 36. This is where it gets really, really interesting. As, as if it's not interesting so far, but 35b. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, Daniel says. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. So the stone, which had not been cut out by human hands, which had destroyed the great image, it grew and became a great mountain. And it it continued to grow until it grew to the point of filling the entire earth. So it's like the stone starts as a big stone and then it becomes a mountain and then it kind of grows and becomes the entire earth, like all of the land mass, if you will. So basically, two things happened with the stone. It replaced the great image and it exceeded the great image in size. Like, you can't even compare the two. One was just a statue that was maybe 60 feet high or so. This other thing envelops the entire world. It replaced it and it grew to a size way beyond. In verse 36, Daniel said to the king, this was the dream. Now we will tell you its interpretation. Notice how he said, we will tell you the interpretation. What's he telling us here? He's telling us that he's not the only one standing there representing the God of heaven. Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were standing by his side at this moment. And Daniel wanted to make sure that the king recognized that it was this group of four that were given the interpretation in a sense, and that they were there representing the God of heaven. Now let's begin to look at Daniel's interpretation. Okay, so we've looked at the description. Now let's begin to look at his interpretation in 37 and 38. He says this, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, that's the air, making you rule over all of them, or them all, you are the head of gold. This is what Daniel says to the king. Now, the first thing that Daniel did was declare to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, that his kingdom, that his power, that his earthly glory had been given to him from his God, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, right? Or as he puts it in the text, the God of heaven. This is the first thing that he says to him. Now, this was a daring move. Nebuchadnezzar was a hot-tempered megalomaniac. I mean, you remember, there were some, you know, some of his religious leaders and astrologers who could not give him an interpretation, and he responds to them by saying, thank you very much for your service, I'll find someone who can. That's not what he does. He says, kill them all. So he's hot-headed, he's irrational, he's illogical, he's a megalomaniac, he's all into himself. You'll see that more in chapter 3 as he builds a big statue. 
It's funny. He gets a dream about a statue that gets destroyed. He turns around in the next chapter and builds one in honor to himself. Guy's not all that smart. So he's a megalomaniac. He's hot-tempered. And yet here's Daniel, who's maybe 17, 18 years old, maybe 19 years old at the time. You know, get out of here, kid. Right? Just a, a little ruddy guy here, you know? A little godly man, a little church guy. And he's sitting here telling the king, you only have what you have. You are what you are because of the God of heaven. This just isn't something that you say to somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. And yet Daniel does it because he was not concerned about his safety. He was concerned about the truth. He was bold. Dangerous move here by telling the king this. Now, also notice he pays the king a bit of a compliment here, so he's not deliberately trying to be a burr to the king. He's not trying to offend the king. He just wants the king to understand where the king actually stands in the whole scheme of things. But he does pay him a bit of a compliment. He refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. This is not to be confused with Jesus' title, right? We think of Jesus. If you're a believer and you've been one, you've studied the Bible, you know that that's a title that he bears. But you must understand that Jesus is the uppercase king of kings. The first king is capitalized. He is the uppercase king of kings. 1 Tim 6.15, Revelation 17.14. Not the lowercase king of kings that you see there in verse 37. Here the title means earthly king that is greater than other earthly kings. Okay, so basically at this point in history... Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, was the premier kingdom. It was one of the largest, one of the most powerful, one of the most glorious, and he was certainly the king over all other kings, at least in Mesopotamia at the time. Now here's my paraphrase of verses 37 and 38. It is the God of heaven, this is Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, it is the God of heaven who has made you an earthly king over other earthly kings and who has given you dominion over, what did he list? The children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. Again, ascribing all of the power and sovereignty to God who gave Nebuchadnezzar this position and these blessings. And you must understand that what you're reading there in that verse is what I would call Genesis language. In Genesis 1.28, God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Adam and Eve were given dominion. Now this is all before the fall, before they ate the fruit, before they plunged creation into sin, themselves into sin. They were given dominion, that's rule, over the earth. They were God's earthly managers, if you will. But there was a catch to it. They were managers with responsibility to, to govern and hold dominion over God's creation, at least the earth part. But there was a stipulation, there was a catch. If they continued to obey God, and this is not uh, said directly in the Genesis account, but it is implied through what happened after they sinned. Uh, when, if they were to sin, they would essentially die is what the scripture says. But, you know, them dying spiritually and then physically later, there were a lot of other implications of their sin. And that's what I'm referring to here. If they continued to obey God, they would maintain dominion, rule. But if they disobeyed God, they would lose it. In Genesis 3, that's where we see the fall of man, says that they disobeyed God and they lost the dominion, or worse, they handed it over to the devil. They gave the serpent dominion over God's creation. The scripture says over and over and over that the king, little k king of this world is the devil. He is the prince of the power of the air. He rules this earth. Obviously, he's under God. He's a created being. He's a fallen angel. But they had, Adam and Eve had dominion. They had rule. And when they sinned, they handed that dominion right over to the devil. And he became the ruler of this earth. In a sense. In a similar way. This is why the Genesis language is represented here in our text in 32 or 38, uh, 37 or 38. 
In a similar way, God had given Nebuchadnezzar dominion over a particular area, and if he obeyed God's instruction, he would keep it, but if he rejected God's instruction, he would lose it or turn it over to someone else, like Adam and Eve did. At the end of verse 38, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold. In other words, the head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Babylon. So we can see so far, we can deduce that Nebuchadnezzar's dream wasn't about a statue, it wasn't about the human anatomy, a blown up version of that, but it was about kingdoms, beginning with his And it was about successive kingdoms, kingdoms that would rise and fall one after the other. Now, if you flip over to chapter 7 of Daniel, you will see that Daniel had a vision similar to Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw the same kingdoms rise and fall, but in his vision, he saw different kinds of beasts rather than parts of a statue. He didn't see a head, he didn't see shoulders, he saw beasts, different types of animal forms. And he saw... Or actually, there were many other details that are included in that version or account of it. And we're not going to talk about that stuff today. We're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 7. It's a little more exhaustive. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Babylon was a golden head. But in Daniel's vision, Babylon was a lion with eagle's wings. But they represent the same thing. Some theologians, guys who study the Bible suggests that Nebuchadnezzar's dream represents man's view of earthly kings and kingdoms. Man sees earthly kings and kingdoms as glorious, like gold, like silver, like bronze, and I suppose like iron. But Daniel's vision in chapter 7 represents God's view of earthly kings and kingdoms. He sees them as various kinds of beasts. Now, This harmonizes really well with what we looked at last week, Solomon's assessment of the children of man in Ecclesiastes 3.18. The children of man are but beasts. You remember I said last week that someone once said, you know, no wonder people act like animals. They've been taught from the youngest age that they evolved from them. Would we all agree that humanity is becoming more and more savage and animalistic? I mean, you just don't know what's going on in the world. Maybe you never flip on the news. Maybe you don't mix and mingle with people in the community. Maybe you don't live where I do, where you hear shootings every night. We are like beasts. We are becoming worse and worse. In fact, I think animals have more respect for themselves and for each other than we do. We should know better. Animals don't have a rational or logical mind. They're instinctive. We have, ration, uh, we have a rational mind. We have logic. And yet we behave like barbaric beasts. We devour one another. But we'll get to all that in 7. Now look at 39a. Yeah, it's like you guys are like, no, just keep going with that. That sounds really good. I can't. Look at 39a. Another kingdom inferior to you, look at that, how he says you, shall arise after you. Here he's referring to the second kingdom, the chest and arms of silver, or the bear of chapter 7. Now silver is no doubt a precious metal, but it is not as valuable. It is in many ways inferior to gold. And in a similar way, this second kingdom will be morally inferior to Babylon. The question is, which kingdom did God have in mind here? Well, there is a clue in the text. It says, shall arise after you. The kingdom that arose to power, to preeminence or prominence after Babylon was Medo-Persia. Two groups, the Medes and the Persians, merged together to form the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Think of the territory of Iran The Iranians are descended from Persians. In 539 B.C., they attacked the city of Babylon at night and overthrew the kingdom. They wiped them out. And they 
ruled in that region for about 200 years. So the first kingdom, the head, is Babylon. The second, the shoulders, that is Medo-Persia. Now look at verse 39b. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Okay? So the third kingdom is represented by the middle and thighs of bronze, or the leopard. And it's a crazy looking leopard. If you fast forward over to seven, it's got like, I don't it's just weird. It's like a hydra leopard. That's chapter seven. Now the kingdom that came to power right after Medo-Persia was none other than Greece. Greece conquered Medo-Persia in 331 BC. Greece ruled over more territory than Babylon and Medo-Persia combined. And this is why it says, which shall rule over all the earth. The Greek empire was massive thanks to Alexander the Great who literally wept when he ran out of worlds to smash and subjugate. And this guy was in his early 20s, and he, he was just the most brilliant military commander of all time and went on a, a crusade and annihilated everything in his path. And then he literally, at one time at night, at, you know, probably in his room or whatever, he started crying because there were no more civilizations to annihilate and take over. Literally. Now, even though Greece was much larger, much more powerful, and much more wealthy than Medo-Persia, God's word refers to it as bronze because it was morally inferior. Ancient Greece was notoriously immoral, especially in regards to sex. Randy Alcorn wrote, they, speaking of the, the Greeks, they elevated loose women, homosexual relations, and pedophilia. These are the things that they were known for. I just, it, you know, it's like Babylon was not the best morally, but it was better than Medo-Persian. You get down to Greece, and now it's like we're going off the rails. Things are just getting worse and worse and worse. Now look at 40 through 43. Daniel says to the king, And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Because iron's pretty darn strong, isn't it? It's very strong. I used to work with it. Because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So, the fourth kingdom is represented by the legs of iron... And this is where some people might disagree, but I think it's fluid and there's continuity in the text. They would say that the feet of iron mixed with clay represent a different kingdom, but the text really seems to say they're all part of the same thing. The feet, the legs, the lower legs, and the feet, they're all part of the same thing. So the fourth kingdom is represented by the legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay, or the eleven-horned beast of chapter 7. So there's also a downward spiral in chapter 7. You have kind of a normal beast, then you have another beast that's a little bit more frightening. You get all the way down to the bottom and you've got an 11-horned hydra thing that's just out of control. So there's a decrease there. The kingdom that arose to power after Greece was none other than what? The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Now it took the Romans several hundred years to completely stamp out the Greeks the final blow came in 30 B.C. when Egypt fell to Caesar Augustus. That's probably about the time that they assumed full control of the region. The Roman Empire then took control of most of that region and most of the Greek territories. But it spread farther than all of the other kingdoms combined. It was much, much larger than all the other three. In fact, if you took all three and combined them, they were not nearly as large as the Roman Empire. You may not know this, but the Roman Empire spread as far, as, as far north as Britannia, which is England and Wales. 
There are Roman ruins in that area. You can go to England and you know, go to a pub and hang out. Then you can go over and check out some Roman ruins because the Roman Empire got that far. It took over Gaul. It took over most of Europe. It was huge, massive. The Roman Empire and its military was literally like a wrecking ball. And this is why verse 4, he says, like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Rome, the Roman Empire became the kingdom of all kingdoms. It was massive. It, made, it dwarfed the other ones. Now in the early days of the empire, Rome prided itself on moral excellence and family. And that's kind of hard to believe, but if you study history, you'll see that the early Caesars did do this. They prided themselves on moral excellence. They prided themselves on family. But over time, the empire exchanged these values for worldliness and ultimately plunged itself into the depths of human depravity. It became like Greece, but even worse. It really did. Morally, it just... This is why it's the iron and iron with clay. It just got really, really ugly and bad. Now... The Roman Empire is like iron because it was stronger than the other kingdoms and also because it was less moral than the other kingdoms. It's, a decrease, it's the lowest value of the group. The moral decay happened over time and the empire that began as iron regressed to a state of potter's clay mixed with iron, thus making it, this is what the text says, partly strong and partly brittle. This mixture speaks of progressive weakness, like a growing weakness and a growing deterioration. Two metals together form an alloy which may be stronger than either of the metals individually, but iron and clay cannot be mixed. If iron and clay are put into a crucible, heated to the melting point, and poured into a mold when the um, when the pore has cooled, the iron and clay remain separate. They can't bond together. The clay can be broken out, which leaves a weak casting. Okay? So that's what he's saying here. It's not a strong, it appears to be strong, but in terms of morality, it's really fragile. It's got a little bit of strength. There's some people hanging on, but the vast majority of its inhabitants have gone in the direction of immorality. It's losing its uh, moral uh, strength, if you will. This fourth kingdom uh, would also be characterized by division. It says, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Though Rome succeeded in conquering the territories that came under its influence, it never could unite the peoples to form a united empire. Now, when we think of the Roman Empire, historically, we want to think of it as one empire, but that does not mean that it was not divided. It was a divided empire. Even though it was under a conglomerate or an umbrella of one, it was severely divided. There was a lot of inviting and fighting and division and these sorts of things. So that's the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. Now look at verses 45 or 44 and 45. And in the days, this is what Daniel says to the king, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God, he says this, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Here, Daniel introduces a fifth kingdom. A fifth kingdom. It is the kingdom, as he describes, that the God of heaven will establish during the days of those kings. This kingdom will begin as a stone, and over time it will grow into a mountain, and then over more time it will spread and fill the entire earth. This is what he says. 
He also says that it will never be destroyed, never be left to another people. In other words, its king will never be dethroned and it will not be given to someone who will come after him. And he says that it shall stand forever. So this kingdom is without end. It is what I would refer to as everlasting. It goes and it goes and it goes. It has no end. A great question arises at this point as we study this text. What kingdom is the Lord referring to here? What kingdom is Daniel pointing to? What is this fifth kingdom? It is none other than the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Or what we refer to as the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign kingdom, which doesn't literally end at a thousand years. It continues off into eternity. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is the millennial kingdom. All of scripture makes this point. It points to this fact. This text does it. You just have to decode it and look at it closely as we have been. Now I want you to listen to the parallels between the king's dream, his vision, right? And Jesus. I want you to hear the parallels between his dream and Jesus, and I want you to see how his dream and this kingdom point to Jesus, because this is something that we've been doing each week. We've been making sure to somehow find in the text how it points to Jesus, because all of Scripture is threaded to him somehow. And this text is just blatant and open with it, more so than the other passages we've been looking at. And this is truly amazing. The kingdom that God planned to establish, okay, from the text, from from the king's vision, from Daniel's interpretation, the kingdom that God planned to establish would begin during one of the above kingdoms. Okay? It's not like all these kingdoms cease to exist over time and then this kingdom comes in. This kingdom would literally, the one he's referring to, the kingdom of the God of heaven, the millennial kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, would literally begin during one of these other kingdoms. And now you have to ask yourself the question, when was Jesus born? When did God enter into human flesh? When did the incarnation, when did Jesus come to earth? When did God come to earth in the form of Jesus? In the form of a person. When was Jesus born? He was born during the fourth kingdom. During the Roman Empire, wasn't he? Jesus literally entered our world during, as Daniel put it, the days of those kings. Just as God predicted through Daniel. So you have the Roman Empire and it's at its its peak. It's at its apex. And Jesus is born right during the apex, the height of the Roman Empire. That tells us something, doesn't it? It Tells us that Daniel's prediction is totally accurate and true. Jesus came literally during the days of those kings, just as Daniel predicted many, many centuries before Jesus actually was born. Now let's ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, we touched on it earlier. He is the uppercase king of kings, which means that he is the highest king of all. No king higher than him. And it also means because he's a king and the king of kings, it means that he has a kingdom. It means that he rules over a kingdom. You don't call someone a king if they don't have a kingdom. And you don't call someone the king of kings with a capital K if he doesn't have an amazing bomb kingdom that's bigger and brighter and better than all others. Jesus was born during the fourth kingdom, and Jesus is the uppercase king of kings. He is the highest king. He is the the ruler over the highest kingdom. But that's not all that he is. He is also the stone the builders rejected, who became the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118.22, Matthew 21.42, Mark 12, 10, Luke 20, 17, on and on and on. So he's not just a king or the king of kings. He's also a stone. He's the chief stone. He is also 
the rock of offense that people stumble over. It's like when they hear the name of Jesus, they think that this is stupid, it's religion, it's all this. They don't see him as a savior. They don't see him as beautiful and wonderful, of supreme value and worth, glorious. They don't see him that way. I didn't see him that way for 30 years. Then I was brought into the light by the Holy Spirit and I see him that way. But don't miss the point. He is the king. He is the stone. He is the rock of offense that people stumble over. Romans 9.33, 1 Peter 2.8. He is, as Daniel put it in verse 34, the stone not cut out by human hands that what? Shatters the feet of iron and clay and brings down all earthly kingdoms. That's who Jesus is, friends. This text is pointing to him in an extraordinary way. Now let's consider what Jesus came to do. Right? We know when he was born during the fourth kingdom. We know that he's a king and he was a king before he entered into into humanity. He's still a king. He's an eternal king. He's the king of kings. He is the stone. He is the rock. He is all of that and a bag of Fritos. Say a bag of chips. What did Jesus come to do? Well, when we think of Jesus and His work and why He entered into humanity, He came to die for our sins. We always say that. Ask any little elementary kid. They're going to say, He came to die for my sins. Absolutely. No doubt. But Mark 1.15 tells us that He also came to do something else. Usher in God's kingdom. In that particular text, Jesus was preaching the gospel and He said... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It is breaking through. Believe the gospel. So He not only came to die for our sins, right? To live a perfect life, earn our righteousness, to die and to be buried and to rise for our victory over sin, Satan, death, and hell. He also came to usher in, to begin to initiate the very kingdom of God, which would eventually, as Daniel put it in 35b, Become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. Now let's consider what Jesus will do in the future when He comes the second time. He will return to subdue the nations. Psalm 47 verse 3. Or as Daniel put it in verse 44... Break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. Now after destroying all the earthly kingdoms, all the nations, He will sit on His throne, the very throne of David, and reign forever. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Or as Daniel put it at the end of verse 44, it shall stand forever. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is about Jesus and his kingdom. He is the king of kings who came during the fourth kingdom to initiate his own kingdom. And he is the stone that will return to shatter all the kingdoms of the world and establish his everlasting throne. For Daniel... The coming of the stone was a future event. Something to which he could look forward in the midst of the messiness of life. Just again, consider who he is and where he's at. He is a Jewish exile in a pagan foreign land. He's not at home where he's comfortable. He's in the midst of a mess. And for him, he could look forward. This vision was enlightening to him. Wow, there's a kingdom coming. Babylon's really nothing. Medo-Persian, no. It's all going to go. And there's a kingdom that's coming that is superior to them all, that will replace them all. How wonderful. He was looking forward to that. His hope was based in that reality. In that Messiah, that Savior, that King who would come. It was something that he could look forward to but for us the coming of the stone is both past and future we must recognize that 
even though the kingdom of God is growing throughout the world as men, women, and children become Christians through the work of the Holy Spirit by grace through faith, the present will continue to be a time of trials and difficulties until the stone returns. When things are going badly for us in this life, when our earthly hopes and dreams are in tatters, and our lives are being crushed under the jackboot of the kingdoms of this world, we need to remember that this world is not ultimate. When we face sickness, isolation, and disability, even death itself, we need to remember that there is a kingdom that lasts beyond the grave. And when things are going good for us in this life, when we may feel like the head of gold, when this world showers its honors and favors upon us, we need to remember that there will come a day when all of our little triumphs and glories will lie in dust and we will stand before our Creator to give an account. When that day comes, what will count will not be our standing in the statue, but our standing on the stone. In Matthew 21, 43 through 44, and I'm wrapping it up, Jesus actually applied Daniel's prediction to himself. Jesus pointed back and then pointed to himself. He was speaking of me. As he was talking in that passage, he was warning the religious leaders around him, the Pharisees and scribes, you know, the big-time Jewish religious leaders who were basically rejecting him all the time. They didn't, love his, they didn't like his message. They didn't like him. They didn't like his popularity. He was warning these leaders not to reject the stone. And he was telling them what would happen if they did. And they continued in that rebellion against him. He said, Anyone on whom this stone falls will be crushed. In other words, those who reject the stone, the Lord Jesus, will be crushed by it or by Him. This was essentially God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel's prediction. See, it isn't just about helping Nebuchadnezzar get back to his sleep habits, telling him the dream, you know, it's important that you get your sleep. You are ruling a massive kingdom, so I've got answers for you. No, the whole point of this prediction in Daniel's context was to make this king who thought he was mighty and big to reduce him so that he would see his own dependency on the God of heaven. That, there is, that his kingdom, the golden head, is going to come tumbling down someday. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, don't put your trust in who you are and in what you're doing. It's going to come to an end. There is a stone that is going to destroy it. And you will be crushed and turned to dust if you stay in this pattern, in this thinking. That is the prediction for Nebuchadnezzar. Repent! Why do you think that, that God used through Daniel the, the Genesis language? You have dominion, I've given it to you. But if you sin against me, if you stay rebellious, if you do not hold a path of morality and uphold my law, I will take this dominion from you. The prediction is a direct warning to this king, and this is what blows my mind. In the next chapter, he turns around and builds a statue to himself. That's how dense we are, and that's how much we love our sin. We would rather build statues in our own glory and in our own name than submit to the king of kings, who actually brings us abundant life, true gold. That's the deception of the devil. This is all religion. It's all stupid. It's a waste of time. You're a statue. You're gold. You're good. That's his deception. We are not good. We are not glorious. We are but beasts. 
Lest we submit to the Lord Jesus, we will remain as beasts. Scrounging our way through life from one relationship to another, from one sin to another, from one addiction to another. I know. We're not a head of cold. We're not even iron mixed with clay. We're the dirt under the statue. This was essentially God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel's prediction. The end of verse 45 says, here's where it's at, a great God. (laughs) A great God. A God that is greater than your astral gods, Nebuchadnezzar. You can't even compare them. You're worshiping the moon. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. In other words, I just gave you what I gave you because God's warning you, man. It's sure. It's certain these things will come to pass. You must respond, Nebuchadnezzar. It's not just... God's warning to Nebuchadnezzar, it is also his warning to us. This same great God is saying, judgment is coming. Do not reject the stone. If you reject my son, the Lord Jesus, the stone, you will be crushed and blown away with the kingdoms of this world. you have never bowed your heart to the stone, to the Lord Jesus, and asked for His pardon and forgiveness, now is the time to take that step. You do not have to be crushed by the stone. You can stand on Him. You can spend the rest of your life standing on Him, the stone, who is the only foundation Worth standing on. And if you have taken this step and are standing on the stone, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus for your righteousness, you know that your best works are no good before God. You know that you do many good things, but you double up and do more bad things. You know that you can't earn your way. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus for your righteousness, He's the perfect one. He's righteous. If you're trusting in Him because of what He earned for you, that righteousness, if you're trusting in Him for salvation, God has a call for you too. He's calling you to live as a kingdom person right now. The kingdom was initiated when Jesus came and it is growing and growing right now. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are a kingdom person. You are not. You are an alien and stranger in this world. You do not belong to this world. You no longer belong to this world and its theories and its illogic and its religions and its way of going, its goodness and all this garbage. Hollywood, you're not a part of that anymore. You're a part of this kingdom, which is not a stone anymore now. It's bigger than that. And when Jesus comes back, it'll increase. You're a kingdom person, and God is calling you as a kingdom person. Live as a kingdom person. Be at peace. Why? Because peace will characterize the kingdom of the Lord. Pursue righteousness. Do what is right and pleasing to God. Walk humbly. Don't build any more statues in honor to yourself. Don't think of yourself too highly. A kingdom person is fine with being a worm. But you're not a worm to God. You're a son or daughter. You might be offensive to those in this world and because you love Jesus. But you are precious in the eyes of the Lord. You may be the scum of the earth, as it says in the New Testament, to others, to the world that is fading and passing away, that is going down the tube, but you are precious in the sight of the Lord. Precious are His saints, especially when they're martyred. You're a son or daughter in Him. 
You're a kingdom person. Be at peace. Pursue righteousness. Walk humbly. Don't think too highly of yourself. Make God known. Kingdom people promote God. They don't promote themselves. They talk about God. They talk about Jesus. Well, I do this and I do that. and I, Who cares? Tell people what God is doing. Even if they say you're an idiot, who cares? Tell them about God. Be bold. Stand up like Daniel. Well, by the way, king, you are who you are and you have what you have because of the God of heaven. Well, who's the God of heaven? He's a better God than yours. Oh, kill him. Be at peace, pursue righteousness, walk humbly, promote God, and be ready and watchful for the return of the stone. He is coming. He is coming. 